Hi everyone, and welcome back to the Transatlantic Notebook. Um, for this episode, I'm going to need you to go Google the following song, Daddy Come and Get Me by Dolly Parton. If this podcast had an unlimited budget, I'd actually start with playing this song, and particularly the first couple of lines in this mental institution looking at through these iron bars. How could he put me in here? How could he go that far? But I don't have an unlimited budget, so feel free to go and listen to, as Dolly yourself put it, the sad-ass song. I'll wait here. All right, we're back. So, a 2017 article of the Journal of the Intensive Care Society, which is a British journal, calls the men we're about to discuss, quote, probably one of the most influential physicians in the history of modern medicine. His nickname is the Napoleon of Neurosis, and I'm talking about none other than Jean-Martin Charcot. He's a looming giant in the medical field in 19th century Paris, especially given his influence on one Sigmund Freud, who studied with him for several months and had a correspondence, a very regular correspondence, with Charcot for years. Charcot's name is also undoubtedly linked to the introduction of photography at the Hospital Pitié-Salpêtrière in the late 19th century and to also the forced institutionalization of thousands of European women. This is why the song is appropriate for this episode. So you might have guessed the title of today's episode, but if you haven't, this is episode three, The Photographer, The Doctor, and The Mad Woman. In 1838, Louis Daguerre takes a photography of the Boulevard du Temple in Paris. Daguerre was Nicephor Nipsey's business partner, and the name Nips should be familiar to you if you're a little bit versed in the history of photography because it's credited with inventing the modern process of photography. Photography itself is probably as old as the Middle Ages, if not more. Leonardo da Vinci, for example, features in his notes a process that's similar to modern photography, like camera, oscu like camera oscura, which means the dark room, literally. Anyways, Nibs is credited with the first modern photograph, uh, which is called view from the window at Le Gras. It was taken from his dad's estate and it took so long to impress that all the shadows on it look flat. Uh, Daguerre was friend with Nibs and he used a similar process called the daguerreotype. If a little bit faster, it also took a very long time to impress. And because of this, on the photography of the Boulevard du Temple, it looks like there aren't any people. Until you realize that in the corner, there is actually a recognizable person. It's a man standing still because his shoes are being shined. It's a Paris that's strangely devoid of life. 50 years after this first human photograph or modern photograph, Kodak inaugurated the era of mass photography. In 1884, George Eastman invented the first reliable and practical role of film and founded the George Eastman Kodak Company up in Rochester. The first ever Kodak produced, sold 5,000 or mass produced, as much as mass produced, something can be mass produced at 5,000 units, sold for $25 each. Now, here's a little anecdote from my uh, economic history classes. You know from following this podcast that I'm not the biggest fan of economic history, but I do remember a couple of things from my college and uh, graduate school years. And one of those things is one of my professors impressed upon this the, uh, the most important thing when you're looking at pricing in the past. If you convert directly this $1888 $25 to a 2021 
um, same amount of dollar uh, inputting the inflation. You know, you can find a number of inflation calculators online. If you do that, what you're missing is what it was really worth for the average person. Because the only thing that it tells you is the inflation that there has been. It doesn't tell you how much a set amount of, of money is worth at the time. So instead of converting this to uh, a $20-$21 amount, what we're going to do is look at the average blue-collar worker uh, pay in 1888, for example, in New York City. So in New York City, a plain blue-collar worker made about $1.65. $25 for such a worker without eating or paying rent, of course, would represent, for this worker, it would represent 16 days of work. 16 days of work, a little over two weeks. Um, if you do that for a U.S. structural iron and steel worker in 2021, and the reason why I'm taking a U.S. structural iron and steel worker, which is a more uh, qualified or a, a, someone who has a, a better technical knowledge than a plain blue collar in 1888, is because there aren't any plain blue collar workers left in the U.S. or very few uh, in uh, factories because they've been replaced by, of course, robots and automation. So I'm taking someone who would have been in the pay scale, pay scale a little bit higher than a plain blue collar workers, but you get the idea. Um, they make, according to the U.S. Department of Labor, about $17 an hour. So if you work in the eight-hour shift, uh, 16 days on that amount that makes about $2,100. So a little over $2,000. If you kept the same scale price for a Kodak today, it would cost, if not the majority, at least half of, a, of the paycheck of a uh, quote-unquote qualified blue-collar worker. By 1891, Kodak cameras had fallen down to around $5, and then came the brownie. It was born with the new century in 1900. It was constructed of humble cardboard uh, with a leatherette on top. It was very ingenious, very simple, a rotary shutter, and it cost exactly $1. In the first year alone, Kodak sold over 150,000 units of its very first Kodak Brownie model. And over the next five years, the company would sell 10 million units in the world of its very first Kodak Brownie model. It doesn't sound like much today, but remember, this is all pre-World War I. There aren't as many people on Earth as there are now. In 1900, there were an estimated 1.6 billion people on Earth. This year, we're close to 8 billion. If the Kodak Brownie was sold today, it would actually sell twice the amount of PlayStation 5 that were sold last year. Kodak put a camera in the hands of almost every child or adult in the United States and Canada, and it did so in very clever ways. For example, in May 1930, at the height of the Great Depression, every child whose 12th birthday would fall on that year could get a free 50th anniversary Kodak Box camera. It's a camera that you can find in antique shops and on eBay very frequently because Kodak gave away more than half a million of those in one month. In the early 20th century, the history of camera and film is interestingly linked to the wider popularization of the medium, and Kodak is a great illustration of this. But what interests me here, and why I mentioned Kodak, outside of the fact that I have a collection of Kodak that now is about, consists of about 100 cameras and 
uh, still cameras and, and uh, film cameras. But outside of this, the interest I have in mentioning Kodak is because it, it, it made, it contributed to make the medium available to everyone. And there's a parallel history here between the availability of the medium and the turn that it takes when it's becoming more available. There is an audience for the monotonous informal portraits that if you're versed in French culture, you know about the Nadar portraits that he did in his studio starting in 1853, like the Baudelaire or Victor Hugo portraits, for example. Um, there is also a financial market for the carte de visite photograph that's in invented by Desiree, and we're going to come back to Desiree in a second. But just as immediately, there is a parallel market for the everyday life in the streets, but also for the grotesque and the obscene in photography. And this relies heavily on the fact that while the Parisian bourgeoisie consumes this form of portraits as much as it consumes Puritan, Puritan ideologies, they also consume avidly these obscene images, even the most disturbing, in the same way that they look down upon poverty as a degenerescence, but at the same time with a morbid fascination. Remember, we talked about Dominique Califa and this elite panic in the 19th century, where basically wealthy people invent the underworld of Paris. There is a parallel between this and the use of photography in showing the abnormal 19th century. But not just in Paris. We're talking about the whole of France, the United Kingdom, and also, of course, the US. Um, and actually, photography and the development of photography in, is one of the touchstones on our road to the history and background of eugenics in Europe and the US. And the best illustration that the story of photography inserts itself neatly into our overall arc of eugenics is that George Eastman, the founder of Kodak, for most of the last years of his life, gave about $25,000 every year to the American Eugenics Society, founded in 1926. I like to remind my students every year uh, when we're talking, when we're discussing my research, in particular this semester, um, I'm teaching a class that's called Science and Madness, which obviously draws a lot from the research that I've been doing for this podcast. But I like to remind my students every year when we talk about my research that the American elite, as well as the French elite, was obsessed with the idea of bodily degenerescence and how to make the race better, quote unquote. And that people like Carnegie or Ford or George Eastman actually founded research that has a direct link to people like Mengele. In fact, um, it's rich families, rich American families like Carnegie, uh, the Vanderbilts, the Rockefeller Foundation, and Ford and Henry Ford, who actually gave money to found the chair that Mengele would occupy as his first position uh, at what is now the Max Planck Institute. So Isman gave $25,000 to the American Eugenics Society every year, and he was so obsessed with the idea of neurological and bodily degenerescence that when he started exhibiting the same symptoms as his mother, who likely died of multiple sclerosis, he chose to kill himself from a single gunshot through the heart rather than end like his mother. The 19th century is the century of the triumph of neurology and psychiatry. Before the century of good deal of mental illnesses were classified as, you know, 
things that were linked to things like humor or physiological things or things that had to do with your character degeneration or demonic possessions. Uh, Michel Foucault, of course, has shown the change from a pathology of religion to a pathology of the body, to, from a pathology of wrong and right and a moral poverty to a pathology of the body in a more economic and systemic approach to things like poverty. And he also, of course, discusses the criminalization of poverty. The 19th century continues what the classical age started, what Michel Foucault calls the great confinement, uh, but changes it differently, um, presents it differently. With this triumph of medicine, um, of a medical approach to uh, madness instead of a philosophical approach, comes the spill of the abnormal in the arts again, but this time from the medical field. Photography is early on a tool that psychiatrists and neurologists use, particularly through physiognomy. And it's this interest that first spills through popular arts like cabaret or slapstick comedy, and then later into film. Two markers of the ambiguous role of photography in the century. So the first known photography to be sent as a postcard was sent in the late 1870s in Europe. And almost immediately, there is an intense market for colonial pornographic postcards that develops, particularly of Northern African women. They're sold under the mantle uh, in Algeria, particularly in French Algeria. But at the other end of the Mediterranean, it's also hard not to think of the 1871 pictures of the dead of the commune, photographed by none other than Parisian photographer Desdéry, who's also famous for his portraits of sex workers, by the way. Um, he used the technique of the wet collodion, uh, which is very sensitive to movement, but has the advantage of needing a much shorter exposure, as short as a couple of seconds. So there is a technical reason why Desdere chose to photograph the dead. But I also want to underline for my audience that I find it very interesting that 16 years earlier, the man widely considered to be the first war photographer, Roger Fenton, took pictures of the Crimea War that didn't show any cadavers. Desiree, who is an astute businessman and a showman, recorded rows of dead young men, uh, sometimes with traces of shots and violent deformed limbs. And he chose the subject on purpose because he knew it was going to sell. And he was right. It sold. It sold newspapers. One scientist who almost immediately understood the value of photography in his line of work was Jean-Martin Charcot. Charcot, as I mentioned earlier, looms really big in the century because he's one of the biggest producers of neurological knowledge um, in Paris in the 19th century. And Paris in the 19th century becomes progressively a center for medical research, but particularly for neurological uh, medical research. Um, Charcot has the same interest uh, in excising, excising um, the kind of poverty that he sees outside his windows. He has the same kind of intellectual background as the same interest that people like Saint-Hilaire have. We've spoken about Saint-Hilaire, who was part of this um, Comité de Salut Public, whose goal was to clean up the street in Paris and have a sort of moral um, 
rule and moral and ethical rule over the neighborhood. Uh, Charcot is a product of his times and this times in particular. However, he's a standalone because he has a very deep grasp of the interest in photography that the public is developing and how it can help him get money for his research. Uh, he's also sort of a standalone uh, in his relationship to humanities and art in general. He spoke or read French, German, Italian, and English, which was actually quite a fit for someone born in 1825, as formalized language education only started later in the century. Uh, but also he was a very good drawer and would hold once a week um, an evening at his home where he would invite artists and poets and writers of the time. So what I'm looking for in, in talking about this is that Charcot was at the center of a heavy form of salon life um, that took its root in the hospital and the clinic instead of taking its root in the uh, female salon of the 18th century, but he has the same kind of rich and the same kind of social network that you'd expect someone like Madame de Stel to have. Um, so it's a kind of socialization that's based on the salon, that's based on who you're inviting and who you're hosting. Um, so in addition to his work in the, in the clinic, he has this very uh, big link to the arts, the humanities, writers of the time, poets of the time, etc., etc. So Charcot finished his medical studies in the early 1850s, and by the end of the decade, he was already becoming a big name in the history of madness and medicine. He worked at the Pitié-Salpêtrière Hospital in Paris, where he was appointed chef de clinique in 1853, um, sort of like the service um, head or chair. He was appointed at the young age of 28. Um, he finished actually med school at 23, so he was rather fast in his studies. The hospital of Le Pitié-Salpêtrière, of course, has a history that's not for the faint of heart. Uh, it served as a maison de force for many years. Uh, Foucault describes this in Madness and Civilization very well, so I'm not going to rehash this. Uh, La Pitié-Salpêtrière and Bicêtre Kremlin, the, the best well-known hospital of Paris, have this history, one that associates mistreatments in forced institutionalizations and the creation of the Maison de Force in the 18th century and the terrible living conditions in which people whose only crime was to be unemployed were kept. One interesting person, one interesting testimony from Madness and Civilization, uh, from Foucault's book, is Mirabeau talking about the living condition created by the great, um, the Grand Renfermement. Um, Mirabeau, so Mirabeau talking about these conditions as described by a British traveler in the late 18th century. Quote, we live in the midst of a multitude of oppressions and miseries that leave us indifferent. If we look away from the plight of others, it is to forget this hideous spectacle, not because it grieves our soul, but because it represents an annoyance to our mind, instead of filling us with true dread. It is because it represents a stain on our tasteful world, and not because we commiserate with the oppressed. It does not occur to us that this unbearable lightness makes us guilty in measure of our social influence, of the evils a revolution could prevent, or of impeding all the good it could do. End of quote. Of course, you have to remember that the same Mirabeau, according to Michel Foucault, 
also thinks that in seeing people are never to be released less they contaminate society. And as Foucault amply demonstrated in both madness and civilization and the birth of the clinic, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Philippe Pinel, for example, who is credited with having reintroduced talk therapy uh, in insane asylums, and I'm using the term here to distinguish these institutions, which in my mind are not hospitals, they're institutions where really bad things happen. So I'm using that term to distinguish them from mental health institutions that we have today and psychiatric wards that we have today. Those are not psychiatric wards. Those are insane asylums. And that's how they see people in, uh, where their patients, they're dehumanized, and this is what we're talking about here. But anyways, uh, Foucault demonstrates amply how at the uh, end of the 18th century, talk therapy is reestablished and the conversation with the mad is reestablished, a conversation that existed in the Middle Ages but disappeared around the Classical Age. So when Pinel comes around, women are routinely chained to the floor. Uh, they're beaten and starved at La Pitié-Selpetrière. But here's the thing, Pinel, P- Philippe Pinel's per- reputation is far too big for the man. First of all, he learned a lot from the wing governor that he worked with at Bicetre, uh, Pucin, but Pucin wasn't formally trained, so he tends to disappear from stories about Pinel uh, in history of medicines, of medicine. Um, and then Pinel is also often portrayed as a kind of savior, and particularly I'm thinking here about one painting where he is shown walking with a herd of bourgeois, and those are the people who would finance his work. Uh, and he is ordering the liberation of this chained women. And amongst them, uh, amongst the women, the people who were following him, the well-dressed people, is a well-dressed woman showing emotion in front of the distress of uh, this poor women uh, who were previously chained to the floor. And this painting is interesting to me because it speaks to the role of women in charities and to how white women are, in t- and are an integral part of both the system that oppresses minorities in the name of in the name of morality and health and the health uh, the health of society, but they're also a part of the system that supports oppressed minorities. Um, so it's a very ambiguous role. I must remind the audience, though, that although Pinel reintroduces talk therapy at La Petite Salpetrière um, as a form of confession. Uh, that's not religious in nature, that's medical. He also said, again cited by Michel Foucault, that domination and violence are the precursor to any dealings with the mad. So the goal at the start of the 19th century and throughout the 19th century is not to avoid physical punishment uh, on mentally ill patients. It is to introduce a form of treatment where there were none up until that point. Um, there is a part of it that, a part of this idea of treatment that also stems from the fact that increasingly there is a conscience of systemic issues, like the idea, for example, that poverty is not a spiritual ailment as it was believed previously by many, many um, public policy producers, but it's an economic issue. So the treatment of madness does not change much in the 19th century, despite what the history, the classical positivistic history of medicine would like you to believe. The fact that changes, the thing that changes in the treatment of madness is that it's again part of a visual environment um, 
like it was in the Middle Ages and Renaissance, I'm thinking here, for example, about Euronymous Bosch and the multiple uh, temptations of Saint Anthony. But it has some, somewhat disappeared from uh, the pictorial environment. Uh, it's now again represented, but in ways that it was not before. We're concentrating here on the idea of movement and the idea of uncontrolled movement in particular. Jean-Martin Charcot, specifically, is part of a new cohort of doctors who, after Pinel, made madness a visible and widely consumed issue. So Charcot rapidly established, formally, a very elaborate photography lab at La Pitié-Salpetrière. He hired professional photographer Albert Londe, um, after initially his interns served as amateur photographers. Obviously, once the lab was launched, it became too big to just be a side thing, and so he hired Londe. And according to an article in Nature magazine in 1883, the lab held equipment, uh, a dark room, and an observation chamber with a bed. Londe is a very important uh, character in uh, medical photography. In 1893, he published one of the first books on medical photography, La Photographie Médicale, where he described photography as a science, which is interesting because during the century, there is a robust discussion at the time on whether it's an art or a science. Charcot and Londe are not the first to use photography at the Pitié-Salpêtrière. In 1866 already, Dr. Hardy um, had asked his intern Arthur de Montméja to use photography for pedagogical reasons. Montméja went on to found alongside one of Charcot's interns, the first photography and medicine journal in the country and perhaps actually in the world. Charcot tasked his intern, Bourneville, with formalizing the photo lab of the Salpetriere as well as its pedagogical production. Uh, and at the same time, he was, Charcot was founding a modern museum of anatomy. So there is a concern here that's pedagogical nature to show the body. Londe became the first official photographer of the newly created photography service of the hospital in 1884. And from then on, he invented many photographical machines. In many ways, George Eastman's work actually owes a huge debt to Londe. Um, he first invented the first reflex, the first modern reflex, a stereoscopic camera, a new chronophotography machine. He perfected systems that Kodak was still using in the 1980s, actually. Yes, 1980, the 1980s. So it has what he, the, that photography lab casts a long shadow. Uh, Londe collaborated with many of Charcot's interns, notably the famous Gilles de la Tourette, for example. Um, and you can find more in an article that I'll post on my website by Dr. Olivier Velozinski, who's done research, more extensive research in the lab and the setup of the lab. Charcot's interest in photography is not coming from nowhere. Um, he actually inherited it from the man he often calls in his correspondence his master in the area, Duchesne de Boulogne. Duchesne de Boulogne created the faces that you're probably familiar with. He stuck electric needles with small currents on, in some of his students' and patients' faces in the hopes of recreating every kind of facial expression you could ever imagine. This, of course, you know, Immediately when I see these faces, I think about the medieval sculptures that are kept in particular at the Museum of Notre-Dame in Strasbourg, uh, the L'Oeuvre Notre-Dame in Strasbourg, and that are meant to represent facial emotions. Um, and these faces have something of that medieval idea 
of showing the worst of someone's character on their face. Um, and actually, the return of fashion in fashion of physiognomy, which is the idea that you could deduce someone's character from their face and facial emotion, uh, the fact that this returns in the 19th century is not neutral. Duchenne de Boulogne's work in Mechanism of the Human of Facial Expression aims to show that there are some people who have specific conditions and specific, um, you know, specific weaknesses in their character. Uh, it's based on Galvani and Volta's work on electrical current and biological cells, but it's a completely different approach to uh, electricity in medicine. Obviously, you know, if you're going to base your judgment of, of someone's worth and someone's intelligence on their face, that's particularly apt, uh, that's a particularly um, good way of establishing classism and class differences and, you know, institutionalizing rationalism. The idea that a face betrays the character, the idea that a face betrays a degeneration, that's easily adaptable to rational classification. Charcot's work on depicting his patients has some of that idea, some of that physiognomy idea. And Charcot becomes very, very popular. His lectures are actually internationally known. There are performances where willing or unwilling patients are uh, poked and prodded until they perform fits of hysteria. By the way, interestingly, hysteria replaces completely melancholia in medical books by the 1840s in the U.S., around the 1840s. And it has completely sexist origins, of course. But I'm going to have to emphasize here that Charcot was one of the big proponents of hysteria and one of the men who legitimized it and made it so famous. Charcot did not actually think that hysteria could only touch women. And we'll come back to this in a second. A typical week would find Charcot lecturing on Tuesday, making the rounds in the morning, often followed by a flock of students and sometimes an artist or a photographer, and then working on research in the afternoon. On Fridays or Thursdays, uh, most often on Fridays, Charcot would spend an evening dedicated to music and fine arts, and he'll invite the most prominent writers of the time. Charcot ranked neurological issues in several divisions that he documented in many books. Um, those books always, almost always include artists' sketches. Sometimes he would do sketches himself. He was a very drawer. Um, they were followed by pathology reports um, where he would list the patient's symptoms and signs of hysteria and his theory on why they were quote-unquote crazy. Now, Again, it bears saying this, contrary to popular belief, Charcot did not think that hysteria could affect only women. There are numerous men that he thought were hysterical, and not in a good sense. But all of these men have in common that they, ha they have some kind of inferiority. They're either Jewish, they're blue-collar, they're black or brown. In short, they're not upper-white wealthy men. He's not the first to think this, by the way, this idea of uh, degeneration and how it affects some humans more than others, and in particular, how that overlaps with classist and racist ideas. Um, Michel Foucault, in particular, notes in Chapter 7 of Madness and Civilization that there is a very big number of French and British doctors at the end of the 18th century who are preoccupied with the idea 
of the rise of neurological diseases that they attribute to a certain quote-unquote degenerescence of the race. This kind of discourse, of course, you're hearing me say this, degenerescence of the race, that's by essence why it gives birth to eugenics. It also gives birth to a number of uh, Malthusian theories of demographics. But yes, there is a direct link between this idea of race degenerescence and, of course, the logical conclusion or the logical or the inevitable conclusion of this discourse, which is uh, the Holocaust. Um, it's easy to perceive the classism in the treatment that Charcot reserved to blue collar patients. There is always the expectations when you the expectation when you um, read him and you read his pathology reports about blue collar patients. There is the expectation that they will never heal in the way that he would think a white collar a white collar upper class white man would. Um, in particular, there is a famous case of. A man who came to the PTSD Salpetriere was a head trauma. He was a blue collar worker. Um, it made him prompt to anger and change of moods. We've all heard the story of uh, the uh, foreman, uh, Gideon, and I forget his last name, uh, was had he, he got a rod uh, in his head. A rod got um, thrown in it at his head and uh, after that he was his entire mood his entire personality changed because the rod happened to cross his brain or to get into his brain uh, the part of the brain that controls some of the moods um, so there is a similar story here uh, while at the Salbutriere this guy improved terrifically actually so much that he was put to work to quote unquote redeem his debt and of course, this is before the invention of social security in France. So, you know, he had to work to redeem his debt. And finally, while he worked at the PC Salpetriere, he actually re-injured himself uh, because asylums frequently employed patients without paying them and in conditions that were atrocious. In fact, it was actually illegal to do so in the United States until 1973. You could put a patient to work and not pay them a single cent of wage. We'll come back to this, but one of the asylums local to where I am boasted of being the cheapest of New York State, of the New York State system by employing men like Lawrence M., who is a, an Eastern European immigrant who was denied release, even though it is well documented that he never had any signs of mental illness after 55 years old. Uh, he came to Willard Asylum because he had... Uh, apparent delusions and who'd have episodes of hearing things and it looks like he might have had a gold old fashioned um, face and spiritual crisis too but he spoke very little English and so he was unable to successfully appeal this confinement uh, he was put to work as a groundskeeper in the cemetery uh, he wrote sporadically from 55 years old until he was 85, to the director of the asylum of the system to ask to be uh, released back. Uh, his argument was because he was so good at taking care of the grounds, he obviously could work for himself and could care for himself. And year after year, the reports by doctors who examined him saying the same thing. He was 
perfectly whatever had happened to him to traumatize him, it was gone. He had no symptoms of mental illness after 55 years old. He was never released, um, and he died in his sleep at 85 years old. I'll come back to Willard, but this is the type of treatment that um, asylums um, give to blue-collar workers. If you are not showing signs of illness anymore, then you're put to work. And if you're unlucky, like this guy at La Pitié-Salpêtrière, you end up injuring yourself worse than you were and end up worse than you were because the doctors don't really treat you as a real human being. To compound this, um, it's very clear from reading Charcot that there is one type of disease that Charcot says only apex men can get, and that is the white bourgeoisie, of course. And it's a type of brain fatigue that he observes in some of his patients. It's a type of specific fatigue that we call to, we would call today burnout uh, that specifically provokes mood changes, involuntary movements, sometimes epilepsy, uh, narcolepsy, and so on. Um, and according to Charcot, it can only happen to white men of the upper class because it requires a brain that can go to abstract death in a way that, according to him, the brain of blue-collar workers or Jewish people or black people or women cannot do. In addition to this idea of brain fatigue, Charcot admits the theory that family degeneracy and skin lead to certain neurological diseases. And he's not wrong on the fact that a lot, of, if not most, neurological diseases have genetic origins. But where it gets chilly here, where it gets really, really, really bad, is that Charcot, of course, thinks that certain type of people are genetically predisposed to degenerative diseases. In particular, he isolates the type of wandering of the mind that he associates specifically with Jewish men. He happens to receive in, in his clinic a large amount of musicians from Australia and uh, Germany. And a good portion of them are Jewish musicians. Um, overall, what strikes me in reading Medi Charcot's medical reports and Canaveri's descriptions of him um, he's, is that he's very detached from his patients. They're not, unless he's, he's talking about specific patients, um, and you know, patients that are recommended to him by his friend because they're, they're family members, and um, there he will show some affection and some care for the patient. But unless there is this specific connection, Charcot is more interested in, in the disease than he is in the person. It's visible for one of his uh, female patients, Louise Augustine Glaze, uh, more commonly known under the name Augustine. Uh, she's one of his quote-unquote pet hysterical subjects, and uh, she literally made him famous. So... Uh, Augustine came to the Pitié Salpetrière because she was likely raped at age 10 or um, and 13. She's raped twice uh, by a male relative, um, likely. And Sigmund Freud actually speaks of Augustine and uh, reminds in the reader of his letters how she performed the Syria almost on command uh, after being hypnotized by Charcot. So she would be photographed in the studio and participate in the public lectures that Charcot organized and from which he derived fame and finances. Glaze is basically Charcot's door, uh, traumatized woman who is being re-traumatized over and over again by the doctors surrounding her. In Charcot's case, at the very least, there are ethical questions. 
if he did not participate in the physical abuse of Augustine, as Bourneville did, for example, uh, it's documented in partial sources that Bourneville made very uh, disparaging comments to Augustine, uh, touched her in a form that's not entirely clear because, I'll, as I'll say in a minute, we don't really have Augustine's side of things. Um, but it, it sounds from the sources that Bonneville, at the very least, uh, was sexually assaulting on, the reg on a regular basis Augustine. Charcot, um, in Charcot's case, we have no proof. There are no proofs or there are no traces that he ever did anything to Augustine besides um, hypnotizing her and making her perform uncommon, basically. But there is no trace that he sexually abused her or bit her. Uh, however, um, and this is where you see the Charcot that's completely uh, obsessed by um, the, the, the disease and his own fame. Uh, after physical shock, so what happened apparently is that Augustine fell down the stairs and this physical shock made her overcome her sexual trauma and she, for all uh, intents and purposes, was healed. After she's healed, she refused to be photographed again and she refused to participate in the lectures. And Charcot punished her with solitary confinement. Augustine is the subject of Alice Winokur's erotic drama, Augustine, uh, which, to my knowledge, has very little relationship to reality. Augustine and Charcot did not have a sexual relationship, although, interestingly, his wife's name was Augustine, which might be the reason for this confusion in the film. Uh, but at the very least, the film is good at depicting the troubling story of her stay at the Pitié. There's also a film on... Um, from on Augustine from 2003 it's called simply also Augustine uh, it's the filmmakers are called Mono and Valta and it depicts the oppressive atmosphere of Augustine's quote-unquote treatment uh, through the use of black and white filming um, and she is shown relieving her trauma over and over again uh, she frequently apparently had attacks where she'd get an anxiety attacks basically uh, triggered by her being reminded of her sexual trauma by the doctors. Uh, Augustine arrived at the Pitié at age 14 in 1875, and five years later, she left in the middle of the night dressed as a man. She's never to be seen again. But it's her trauma and torture which made Chaco an international star. And it's a testament to how she was treated that she fled the Pitié Salpêtrière in the middle of the night, and felt the need to never appear in a newspaper or never talk, never to talk about her experience again. I mean, here's the thing. Given the mindset at the time, she could have easily cashed out on this by going to the nearest newspaper and talking about her experience as a patient at La Pitié Salpêtrière. There are two things that the fact that she was never to be seen again, never to be heard about, tell us. The first thing is that she was afraid of Charcot's rage, and I think she was rightly afraid. Charcot was an extremely powerful doctor, uh, and he is responsible for uh, the internment of many, many, many women in France. 
the other thing is that she chose never to talk about her experience because it was, I think, it, it's my theory is that because it was so traumatizing that she never, she never spoke about it. Uh, that tells you a lot about Charcot and the kind of clinic that he ran. And in fact, this relationship with Augustine, this very dubious relationship with Augustine, this very uh, problematic relationship that Charcot had with Augustine is shown today. Um, if you Google Charcot and hysteria, the two terms Charcot and hysteria, it's her face that you see most commonly in photographs. In particular, in the Attitude Passionnelle of 1871, 1878, sorry, uh, from the Iconographie Photographique de la Salpetrière, published the same year. It's interesting that we have no words, we have no testimonial from Augustine on her stay at the Pitié Salpetrière. She literally disappeared into the mist. We have no words from her other than that, that Charcot wrote in his books. But despite this, her continued fame and anonymity in a way uh, is perpetuated by the fact that if you Google Charcot, she is literally the first face that comes up. The other face that comes up or the other person, the other woman that comes up uh, is in André Brouillet's painting, Lesson at the Pitié Salpetrière. It's an 1887 painting and in it you see Charcot holding a woman who's passed out. This is Blanche Whitman, uh, who in the painting is hypnotized by Charcot as he is demonstrating the kind of uh, involuntary movement or catatonia that she has. These two women's bodies were stolen by science. Augustine took it back and fled. Um, there is very little that's known on Blanche, on Blanche Whitman. She was from a... a social class is a little bit above Augustine. Augustine was clearly from a blue-collar family. But it's interesting that those female patients' treatments and the substantial rise of women being committed uh, happens at the same time. And it's portrayed in the new Amazon movie, The Mad Women's Ball, just been released, that's just been released this month and that I highly recommend. Um, because even though it's not based on actual testimonials, it's interesting that for once we're concentrating on the women's experience. So remember Dolly's song, Daddy Come and Get Me? It's estimated that the, in the early years of the 19th century, there were maybe 5,000 women forcefully hospitalized in mental institutions in France. By 1870, there are over 20,000 committed women. The majority of them are committed by male relative, of course. This is in line with the evolution of family rights in the century and the implementation of the awful code Napoleon, which France kept way beyond the death of Napoleon, as the code was only abolished in 1970. Yes, that's 1970, not 8. It's 1-9. Uh, the code made women minors in every possible avenue. It made them unable to hold a job or open a bank account or live alone or be landowners without male permission. And it made divorce illegal. Uh, not that divorce was really legal before, but there, was, there were ways, particularly for the upper class, to uh, have their wedding annulled. Uh, the Code Napoleon made this entirely impossible. It created for pregnant women whose husband died 
a quote unquote tutor of the womb, which could uh, a person who could basically make every medical decision in the of the woman uh, to save the unborn child. And that included if the medical decision could potentially kill the mother. The most important thing was to save the unborn child. The unborn heir to the man would die. Uh, for a personal anecdote, one of the sources that I worked on for my dissertation um, is one of the people that I worked on for my dissertation is called Olympe Audouard. Um, Olympe Audouard was a woman uh, who was in a wedding of convenience that was arranged, a marriage of convenience that was earned by her parents. Uh, and the man that she was wed to um, was an awful person, apparently. Um, he was terrible, uh, would never work, would spend all of her money. But because he was a man, even though she wasn't living with him at the time, when her parents died, he inherited her parents' estate. She had to actually get in front of a, of a tribunal to finally get a decision where she could get some money, a sort of stipend, basically, uh, so she could live with her uh, family uh, on her parents' money. So to come back to Charcot, um, there isn't much backlash um, against the method of Charcot. He's extremely popular. There are other men like Prosper Lucas, who is a, a doctor in Paris too, uh, who also does these demonstrations, but he's less subtle in the violence that he exerts on, on patients. And he actually personally um, was famous for treating badly his patients. And so there is a backlash against Lucas. Uh, Le Figaro, for example, expressed indignation at the way he treated his patients. But there is no backlash against people like Charcot. By the mid-19th century, it's become clear that Paris turns out neurologists and psychiatrists faster than regimes change, which, you know, is quite a number of times during the century. Men like this attracted physicians from the world over. One of Charcot's students, for example, is Henri Mege. Uh, his, his dissertation is overseen by Charcot. It's called The Study of Certain Neuro Neuropathological Travelers, The Wandering Jew at the Salpetriere. So with a title like this, <laughs> you can imagine what this is about. And it may seem a detail of science to the British Journal of Neurology in 2017, talking about Mege's contribution to the field, but... It's a good illustration of what Charcot actually cultivated through his students, and it's a good illustration of how the neurology of the 19th century has a direct link to the Holocaust. In his status, Mesh described one of his patients, Mother Gottlieb, as someone who's constantly sorrowful with delusions of, and delusions of grandeur and bouts of anxiety. In the second part of his status, Mesh presents cases affecting exclusively Jewish students, so he chose to concentrate on this. And in um, the second part of his dissertation, he's got, in the first part of his thesis, he's got a quote-unquote hysterical background, which is entirely constituted of historical sources and literary sources that have nothing to do with medicine and are entirely 100% anti-Semitic descriptions. You know, things like the Bible or, you know, sources like this. Freud mentions in his letters a physician that's widely identified as Charcot by scholars of uh, Freud. 
Um, and we see it of Jewish people that, quote, in my practice in Paris, I've ha I have the occasion to notice that with the Jew, the emotions seem to be more vivid, the sensibility more intense, the nervous reactions more rapid and profound. For Charcot, Jewish people were more susceptible to this type of issues because of inbreeding. Similarly, Charcot's views on women and blue-collar workers are abhorrent. They're in a logic of, of white supremacy. I'm interested here also in how Augustine, for example, and most of Charcot's patients were coached to uh, perform in public. Uh, there are images that show Augustine pictured as being subjected to electrical stimulation to provoke an attack. And so when you're looking at pictures of Augustine, after you've googled uh, Charcot and hysteria, uh, when you see pictures of Augustine, always remember that those pictures might be fabrications. Some of them might be genuine, but some of them are probably fabrication, and actually most of them are probably fabrications. They're staging the patients. So beyond the fact that hysteria is a crockpot of crap, we all agree on this, it's a disease that doesn't really exist, uh, what's horrifying is the nature of these experiments that deeply infringe upon their patients' rights. Experiments to diagnose patients in pathology reports were actually bad enough, but the treatments were also horrifying. Charcot is a big proponent, for example, of electrical shocks to the brain as a way to treat neurological diseases. Lobotomia, you know, hypnosis was a bare minimum for him, but uh, lobotomia, ice bath, etc. At the end of his life, Charcot is said to have deeply regretted his contentions on hysteria, but the fact is that he made hysteria, a spectacle, and he made the spectacle of pathology a thing. And popular art followed suit. This preponderance of medical insanity in France and treaties on medical insanity led to two major things. Uh, one is it's the presence of artists and photographers with, uh, within the walls of the clinic that led to a permeability of their work to visual artistry. Um, there is a fabulous book on the subject by Ray Bess Gordon called Why the French Love Jerry Lewis from the, the Charcot à Charlot in, in the French translation. And I highly advise that you get the uh, French translation because it has a DVD with Augustine on it. And Augustine, the, um, the Mono Valta version is absolutely impossible to find anywhere else than on, on this DVD at the moment. So I highly recommend the French version. Um, so Hybes Gordon explains that there is a mutual relationship between medicine and the treatment of the insane and cabaret, just as there will be a relationship between film and medicine. Um, think, for example, of the involuntary movements of Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin. Slapstick comedy is one of the unintended consequences of the patient Europe develops for the representation of mentally ill people. Theories of degenerations degeneration and eugenics, and that's my number two, are now not just a micro-scientific concern as they were in the 18th century. There are a ton of French and British doctors who talk about this, but they're not yet the dominant voice. In the 18th century, this becomes a dominant voice, and it becomes the major preoccupation of the century. So much so that it actually sediments in literature for through, for example, Emile Zola's work. Because if you remember, his main lives are... Uh, main life's work, uh, the series of books about the Rougon-Macquart family, those books are about 
what else if not degeneration? So they're basically about the effect of poverty on genes and transmissions. Beyond the morbid aspect of this organic relationship between arts and science, which really shouldn't surprise anyone in a country where a visit to the morgue is a valid Sunday stroll, this scientist legitimized the business enterprise of racism and further down the line, of course, of eugenics. And if you want to understand how quickly things become horrifying and how deeply unchanged things are in the 19th century, despite the positive history of medicine articles that load this man and talk about all the progress that was made in treating patients. If you want to understand how little this man cared about patients and how much they cared about eliminating diseases, so much so that they would they were willing to inflict pain and suffering on patients. If you are in the Finger Lakes, I want you to go drive by the Willard Asylum. It's no empty. Uh, it's an asylum that was called the Asylum for the Chronically Insane, otherwise known as Willard Asylum. It's an, an, a hamlet that's dependent upon the town of Romulus on Seneca Lake. And the Willard Asylum started off as an institution of good. It's an institution where people who, for some, had been uh, chained for their entire lives were sent to finally have some form of treatment. The institution was built almost smack on the banks of the lake with its own private embankment so that patients could be shipped in directly from the lake to the asylum, sometimes in the middle of the night. When Willard opened in 1869, it was named after the Surgeon General of New York, Dr. Sylvester Willard, uh, who actually worked with Lincoln, President Lincoln. And it was in a country where people like Mary Roach, one of the first patients of the asylum, had spent decades chained to their bed in poor houses. Um, in descriptions of her, arri- her arrival at Willard, uh, it's said that Mayor Road could actually not walk because she was so deformed by the time she'd spent chained to her bed. Dr. Willard convinced Lincoln to open Willard Asylum after he discovered the rampant mistreatment of mentally ill people in the state's first big facility, the Utica Lunatic Asylum. By the end of the century, there were uh, in Willard Asylum, like at La Pitié, a generalized process of dehumanization, though that didn't wish to stow away the problem from view, but simply to eliminate the disease as if it was possible to eliminate the disease without, necess- without um, infringing upon the life of the patient with techniques like electrical shocks, ice baths, lobotomy, forced sterilization, and permanent obedience through chemicals. And these are so pervasive through popular culture that people like Agatha Christie even refers to this technique in this asylums in her um, novels. And of course, no patients could exit Willard without approval from the doctor. I talked about Lawrence M. earlier in this podcast, but we need to talk also about the case of Joseph Lodville, whose only crime was to be born a woman and insist that he was a man. He spent 10 years at Willard, eventually was transferred to another facility and died there. Anyone, by the way, who died at Willard was interred in a grave in the cemetery within the facility, was only a number on a metal plate and no name for patient rights reason, and this is the irony of this. No one knows who these numbers are, because to this day, New York State refuses to open the the archive so the patient's name can be recovered, and so these graves can't have names. And I know that 
this is for patients' rights because they have a right to privacy. But on the other hand, these graves are semi-abandoned because the cemetery in Willard Asylum was up until now actually not well taken care of. And the other, the other issue that I have with this is that some of these people were immigrants. They weren't able to defend themselves and their families might not even know they died in Willard. There is a form of dignity that comes from being named in death, that comes from having people know what happened to you, that comes from your family knowing what happened to you, that these people are being refused by archaic laws that New York State refuses to change. And it's also not a coincidence that I mentioned Willard Asylum. In setting out to highlight the back and forth between the two sides of the pond in terms of eugenic and in particular in, in terms of, of psychiatry, I need to mention American psychiatrist Michael A. Woodbury. I know very little on him, um, but the few facts that I was able to dig while looking at French psychiatry and his influence on the practice of packing. Let me backtrack here a little bit. Until Francois Hollande decided to prohibit it in 2014, and this decision really only took effect in 2016, the psychiatric units of the PTSL Petrière were amongst the only one in the world still practicing the act of packing. Packing consists in wrapping a patient in wet sheets that have usually been left in the freezer or the fridge for several hours. So imagine you're being put, basically wrapped in, your entire body is being wrapped into ice-cold wet sheets. The goal, according to Professor David Cohen, was the head of the children psychiatry unit at La Pitié Salpetrière is to shock the patient undergoing a self-harming crisis into coming back to the body. It's mainly used with autistic children, and it's a practice that harks back in a direct line to the American asylum, but beyond that, it refers to a completely antiquated idea that frozen water can cure mania. Foucault refers, for example, to Flemish chemist and Dr. Jean ba Jan Baptiste van Almond, who talked about the practice of immersing manics in ice water to quote-unquote cure them. This is something that we've literally been using since the Middle Ages, and we've seen since the Middle Ages that it doesn't work. But until 2014, it was one of the things that the uh, pitié Petrière Children's Psychiatric Unit was using to treat autistic kids. Now, let me underline how much this is a crockpot crock practice. When one of the leading scholars on youth psychiatry and autism at King's College, Emerita Professor Patricia Holin, who founded the journal Autism in 2000, so we're not speaking about anyone, we're speaking about someone who founded one of the leading journals on autism in the early 2000s, when she was asked about packing by French autism advocates, she actually had to be explained what it was because she'd never heard of it. Because there is no equivalent anywhere else but in a few Francophone countries. According to a 2007 Lancet article, only a few Francophone countries still practice this form of therapy in children, and its efficiency has always been in doubt. Since the only serious study ever done on packing in the last 20 years was done at La Salpetrière on less than 10 patients through whom, as Professor Cohen recognizes, a holistic treatment was used, making it impossible to know whether packing had any real effects or not. Coming back to Michael Woodbury, 
He's actually credited with introducing packing in France in the early 1960s. And the interesting thing is that the few things that I've been able to find on the elusive M.A. Woodbury, M.D., is that he probably picked up the practice while working at Chestnut Lodge, a psychiatric hospital in Pennsylvania, and that he may have worked, or at least he wrote on, Willard Asylum. So there is your link. In an editorial praising packing back in the early 2010s, because after it was prohibited, David Cohan continued to advocate for it, he admitted to this link, but he cited the Mayo Clinic as the real model for the practice. And it is correct that the practice was used at the Mayo Clinic in the late 1950s, but it was abandoned in the 1960s when it was still used at Chestnut Lodge in Wilderness Asylum. Both places, by the way, was documented abuse practice, abusive practices against patients. But I guess the name Mayo Clinic is a much more validating medical name than two closed psychiatric hospitals that are currently ghost institutions. When Willard Asylum was closed in 1995, it was promptly abandoned for years, like so many insane asylums across the U.S. Sometimes in the months or so, in the month or year or so after it was shut down, an employee of the state, Beth Courtright, was given the task of trying to salvage whatever could be salvaged in the building before it was condemned. She eventually opened a door to an attic and there found 400 suitcases on shelves, meticulously numbered and cataloged. The suitcases belonged to the patients who'd never left. They were chock full of all the nicks and knacks and photographs they'd brought with them, like the suitcase of one Charles F., who was buried in one of the two Jewish sections of the Ithaca City Cemetery now, and who was a Jewish immigrant from Varsov. The suitcases were either taken from them so they could be cataloged or thrown in the attic when the patients eventually died. I don't have a number for this because I don't think any statistical studies were ever done on the issue. But I've encountered now a high number of cases at Willard that who were either people, um, member of the members of the LGBTQ community, or people who were immigrants, and a lot of them could not advocate for the rights because they didn't even understand English or they didn't speak it very well. They eventually died and were buried in Willard Cemetery with a number. And everyone forgot about them and their suitcases and the suitcases owners lying in anonymous graves until very recently, until the book, The Lives They Left Behind, which is a book that I cannot recommend enough on the patients of Willard, uh, and which is very helpful in understanding what was happening at Willard. Between the founding of Willard and the times that it closed, about over a little over 50,000 patients came in and went uh, in the asylum. There are still to this day about 5,000 people buried in Willard Cemetery. And again, that cemetery until very recently, until 2003, was actually not taken care of at all. The old markers uh, that were basically uh, little triangles in aluminum were replaced recently by concrete markers with a little plaque, according to the state, because it makes it easier to mow 
the grass. But just like the suitcases that have been forgotten in this attic, no one really knows who lies in these graves anymore, except maybe for someone in the state of New York, this government. I can't help here but think about the haunting story that my grandmother used to tell me about the Struthof concentration camp in Alsace, the only concentration camp on French Hill. It was a concentration camp that was relatively small by its size. It didn't include, it wasn't a death camp, it was a war camp. And it mostly uh, housed political prisoners, so very few Jewish people. My grandmother told me uh, when I was little that when she visited it sometimes in the 1960s, before a bunch of neo-Nazis burned the camp in 1979, she was struck by the mountains of suitcases that the camp's deportees were forced to abandon behind them. And I can't help but think about this mountain of abandoned suitcases and the people left behind at Willard Asylum. Many, undoubtedly like Joseph Ludwell, for things that a Puritan and twisted moral considered abnormal at the time. And that a state authority set out to extinguish much as they did with many other marginalized populations. And it's important for me that we remember that people like Joseph Ludwell, Florence M, or Charles F existed and were closer to us than what we think. In the next episode, we're going to continue our photographic trip with a visit to the Carlisle Indian Technical Institute of Pennsylvania, which took pseudo-anthropographic pictures of Native Americans. And we'll talk about a subject that sadly, again, made the news recently, the kidnapping of thousands of young Native Americans and their subsequent mistreatment or disappearance at the, hand, at the hands of white quote-unquote educators. We'll follow a French female traveler from the 19th century, Therese Benson, as she visits the Carlisle Institute and the Virginia Hampton Tech Institute. And we'll talk about the founder of Carlisle, a former U.S. Army colonel, Richard Pratt. And the episode after the next, we'll go back in time a little bit to talk about Arthur de Gobineau, a French diplomat who fought at the beginning of the 19th century that black people were a degenerated version of white people. And to talk about him and the concept of race in America, we'll discuss the work of a political theory scholar, Dr. Jenny Ikuda, on the idea of race aristocracy in the United States through the writings of Tocqueville, who happened to be one of Gobineau's best pals and highly contributed to his visibility um, within political circles. Dr. Jenny Ikuda is a, uh, for is a former grad school classmate well, not classmate really, because we weren't in the same department, but you get the idea. She's an acquaintance of mine, and um, I'll be delighted to talk about her work. Until next time, this is the Transatlantic Notebook, and this is Ace Cipher, your host. We'll see you next time.